Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaholics? What the fucking avians? What the fucksicans? Hello, how are you? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. Glad you all enjoyed the CM Punk episode. Holy bejesus. That thing was popular. Let me tell you. Today's a big day. Edgar Wright is here. Coincidentally, The World's End, that uh, his, his most recent film with Simon Pegg, is now available on digital and Blu-ray DVD, if you're interested. Had a lovely conversation with Mr. Wright. I'm recovering from whatever I just walked through in my house, to be quite honest with you. Look, I feed my cats roughly the same thing all the time, and occasionally something will happen in that litter box that I don't know where the fuck it comes from. I mean, I don't know. Well, how did that happen? I walked into the house, and it was the entire house smelled like a Martian shit in it. And I, you could only speculate what that would mean when an alien shits in your house. What I'm saying, it was a smell that I'd never encountered before. I almost had to do one of those things where I had to, like, I had, to, I had to put a, a handkerchief over my face, like guys do when they come upon corpses in movies, like cops. Like one of them puts a handkerchief over his face while the other one vomits. Yeah, that was that was where I was at. I don't know what it was. I don't know what they ate. I don't know what happened. I haven't changed their diet at all. Something happened. One of the cats is possessed by something horrifying, horrible. Hey, look, there's a couple things I haven't covered with you. First of all, many of you have seen uh, me. I did a Bob Dylan thing. If you go to BobDylan.com, okay, there is a video on there. It is, uh, it's like a Rolling Stone. It's the, I believe, the first video ever of, um, of like a Rolling Stone. I believe it is, is now officially the 50th anniversary of like a rolling stone and i was asked to do a segment in this video i had no idea what it was and i was like all right sounds cool it's for bobdylan.com i don't know what it is they're making a video and it was a very creative thing very creative angle go to bobdylan.com and look at the video you can flip through channels there's different channels on this video and all of us who were involved like drew carey's in it the the uh the brothers who do the the renovation show property brothers uh some guys on uh sports network some guys on wall street now wait a lot of people well, what it is it's based like a cable box but you flip around the channels and everybody is at some point in the song like a rolling stone so we all had to lip sync the song like a rolling stone then there's some intercutting there with uh, dylan as well from a, an older performance of it it's pretty cool thing and I was very happy to be involved with it, but I had no idea it would be as big a thing as it was. I had no idea. So it's me and Ryan Singer, my comedian friend, uh, doing Like a Rolling Stone here in the garage. It's the actual garage. Go to BobDylan.com and do that. What else can I tell you? I've been getting a little flack from, uh, not flack. Uh, you know, I talked about uh, shooting a movie about a year or so ago, maybe more. I can't remember. The movie was called All Wifed Out. Uh, I did uh, two days on that film and uh, and they gave me like, you know, second billing. Like they gave me like I'm, I'm right in the main credits, me and and uh, Shriek and uh, a guy who calls himself the uh, the fat Jew. So I've not seen the movie, but they've been pestering me to watch it. But I, I am in that movie for a few scenes. If that interests you, I don't know if that's really a good plug. I think that's condescending. 
I, I have a, I, I'm not even going to judge it. I'm just telling you it's out there, okay? But here's, here's what I really wanted to get to is that uh, I was in Boston. I was in Boston, and I received, from the Boston Comedy Festival, I received the Comedian of the Year Award. And I flew out to Boston day of, got uh, checked in to the Marriott down by MIT, Felt a little intimidated knowing I was by MIT and knowing that it seemed to be filled with 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 uh, just, you know, power nerds, a lot of power nerds around, probably working on big things across the street, you know, working on big projects. I was there to re- receive my plaque. Uh, this comic, Kyle, comes over and he, you know, he hangs out with me and I only had a few hours. I didn't know what I should do with this time before I had to be at the Somerville Theater to receive my award. So I'm like, I'm going to walk through Boston Boston was important to me. A lot of my memories come from Boston. A lot of things went down, man. Shit went down in Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, all over the New England area. Little parts of my heart are scattered throughout New England. Little pieces of pain were left like packages along the New England highway side, along the New England, uh, uh, along the Mass Pike, along 93, along the expressway, little parts of me in my life, little sadness thrown out of the window from a gig that didn't go so well. You know what I mean? Driving back from the Taunton Regency Hotel after a Saturday night, two shows in a tiered conference room. Some tears were shed, some sniffles sniffled. Some cigarettes angrily smoked and discarded of into the snow along the highway in New England. So I get there. I'm like, let's walk. And we walked through parts of my past. We chatted, me and Kyle. And then we uh, went to fucking Red Bones. It was in Davis Square. That's where the Somerville Theater is. That's where I'm to receive my award. And I lived in an attic in Davis Square, three blocks away from the Somerville Theater back in maybe... What year was that? 88, 87. It was a painted blue attic in a house where a bunch of people lived. People come and go. Maybe one guy's been there the longest and he and he pays the landlord who you don't know the rent check. Nobody knows whose food is who. You, you know, whose food is that? I don't know. It's been in there a long time. Does anyone even cook in this kitchen? Sometimes we try to, but it's kind of gross. Where'd that couch come from? Don't know. It was here when I got here. Wow. Does that TV work? No. You pretty much, if you want TV, you should have it in your own room because it'll get fucked up. Oh, which bathroom can I use? Well, use the one on the second floor because the one on the first floor is broken. That house. And I lived there when I was scrambling to make a living doing comedy. Scrambling. But it was not a dark time. It was just a hard time. And that was two blocks away, three blocks away from what the place where I received the uh, comedian of the ward from the Boston Comedy Festival. Redbones, great barbecue, opened when I was living there. I talked to Karen Whitney, who owns the joint. She came down to see me. We reminisced. And then I went there. I went to the Somerville Theater to accept my award. Uh, it was a contest. There was like, I don't know, seven or eight comics who had been going through a contest, and they were, they were the finals. been a long time since I, I've seen like, you know, comics doing you know, a hungry eight minutes. It was great. Saw Dick Dougherty, Dick Dougherty from Dick Dougherty's Comedy Vault. He's a comedian, had a couple places where he booked in uh, in Boston. He was there. He's one of the judges. How are you, Mark? I once did a road gig with Dick Dougherty, and uh, I was yammering, driving him to the gig, and he turned to me and goes, you know what your problem is? You're insecure. 
You're insecure, Mark. And then we ran into Steven Tyler on the street, who he knew. So for some reason, it was me receiving a Comedian, Comedian of the Year award, and they were also honoring Emmanuel Lewis with a Lifetime Achievement Award. So Emmanuel Lewis was there. I really had a struggle not to make the joke when I went up after Emmanuel to say, uh, I misunderstood. I thought I was being given Emmanuel Lewis as an award. I think that would have been funny, but I didn't do it because I think it was sort of a, you know, it was sort of a short guy joke, but also could have been misinterpreted as uh, perhaps slightly racist if you want to take it all the way back. So I made a choice against that. Yet I told you the, uh, that it went on in my head. I told you what went on in my head. So I got my plaque and uh, it was moving to me because a lot of time uh, I paid a lot of dues there. I learned how to do comedy in New England and uh, it did feel great to, uh, to be honored. And I want to thank uh, Jim uh, McHugh and the Boston Comedy Festival for thinking of me and I'm glad I went out and it was great to see the people I saw. So thank you for that. Let's talk to Edgar Wright. In order to talk to Simon... I sat down and watched space. You know, I watched it straight through, like well, on a full on, and I was glad I did it. But there was part of me that's like, how 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 come I miss this? You know, how did I miss this? Because they don't run it here. I mean, yeah. I have to go find it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that happens with a lot of um, British comedy. Well, what were your things that influenced you in British comedy, so I can put them on a list of things that I have to see, so I can become a big director? Well, <laughs> starting off, let's yeah. go in. Let's go in chronological order from when you were a child. Okay. I, want, I want your earliest memories of like what the equivalent of a, like a children's clown show on the BBC. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what. Well, everybody knows Monty Python, obviously. Of course. Yeah, that one's easy. Um, but the show that like is lesser known over here and actually it was kind of fallen away, like doesn't get repeated that much in the UK, which was almost like the kids version of Monty Python was a show called The Goodies. Yeah. And that was like a... It used to get, first it was shown at nine o'clock at night, Yeah, but it was so popular with kids that they changed the slot to like 6.30 on a Saturday. Uh-huh. And what and was the angle? It was, um, it was a show, it was actually with a lot of um, Python's kind of like peers. It was like this, a Bill Oddie, Tim Brooke Taylor and Graham Garden. And the show was just that they were like, uh, they were like three guys who like they're, it was like, we are the goodies and we will do anything. It was like their... Right, I've heard of this show. Yeah, they yeah, used to yeah, ride yeah. around on a trandom. Yeah. Like sort of, uh, you and, know... And for kids, that was just, that was it. Well, for me, it was like, it had like insane sight gags. Like, yeah. always had massive props in it. There would yeah. always be some enormous sight gag. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, like John Cleese actually appears on the goodies and like um, the running joke used to be, John Cleese appeared on the goodies as a, like a genie in a bottle and then right at the end, just before he disappeared, like he said, he goes, kids program. Like he kind of denigrated them for being a kid show. But when I was a kid, the yeah. goodies was the shit. It's yeah. just like, I love the goodies. It's my favorite show. And just the, it just had, you know, sometimes when I'm the kind of person who gets excited by opening credits. Like, <laughs> Yes, like in American shows, yeah, I sort yeah. of like I get more excited by the opening credits yeah. of like American shows than the shows themselves. I happily watch the opening credits of like I don't know 
anything from like Hardcastle and McCormack to um, like sort of Magnum. Just because it's setting up the show? We just think it's sort of like you you got all of the cool shots in the opening of Magnum and oh, then right, right, Magnum right. PI. And oh, you mean the montage? Yeah, the montage. Yeah, that the sets start. up the, uh, the, the thing. Yeah, you know, Miami. Oh, is. Yeah. yeah, the Miami Vice opening credits are so good, you don't actually have to watch the show. You get it. You get yeah, it. You're like, done. You're I'm in. in. Yeah. I love the. Oh, there's. Like, well, that's interesting this. because I think that speaks to your style just a bit that yeah. you know, there's a sort of uh, quickness to it that where everything is explained very quickly and then the cuts jump. And that, so that was. Do you think that inspires you directorially? Is like, how can I move? Because you can tell a story, like you said, in the opening credits. Yeah, you're done. You know, it's 45 seconds. Yeah. I but th- there's a pace to it. I think so. I think there's something in that, definitely, that I, I don't know. I, I definitely t- tend towards, like, um, like uh, quicker cuts in some of the stuff that I've done. Maybe, maybe that's it. I mean, I definitely, I definitely like kind of um, shows that are really dense. Yeah. Which is why I used to, to go back to the comedy shows, yeah. I, I would say the ones that were big influences on me python yeah the goodies yeah the young ones yeah and that played over here right it did was that was, it was but, on mtv right Wasn't yeah it? i remember it uh, i remember it uh, uh vaguely there was a long-haired guy who was sort of like a moron neil yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm not trying to insult your friends I, it was just a character right? oh, no, it's <laughs> neil, like, yes. yeah but i yeah i remember that show neil rick like uh vivian and mike and uh, that that show I remember, like, that show was, like, oh, there was only two series of it, seasons, for uh, the U.S. listeners. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like everything in Britain is two seasons or yeah. three. Three's know, a big run. I know Simon was saying about this on I, like, yeah. on, on his kind of podcast, but that's absolutely true, is that in, in a weird way, like, um, you know, over here, the whole thing is to get to the syndication 100. 100. Could you? But it's, like, 100. Yeah. <laughs> but in the U.K., it's the opposite, where something like The Young Ones, yeah. like, there's the, the sort of uh, something like the young ones the fact that they only did two seasons and at the end of the second yeah. season yeah. they all die <laughs> like the end of the second season like a bus goes over a, cli- a cliff and like the bus explodes and then the credits go up with all in sort of against black and it's like they all died and always to me that was the sort of the ultimate like rock and roll ending is like you know Live fast, die young. Sure. Leave, leave a goodling corpse, only do two series. <laughs> like, get out of there. And there's a good sort of a kind of like a, almost a satiric punch to that. It's like, you know, fuck you, the show's over. Yeah. We're going to just go ahead and die. Although, ironically, yeah, I always used to think that. And ironically, um, Simon worked with Adrian Edmondson, who played Vivian on that show. And he admitted, like Simon did something with him way later, maybe like 20 years later. And um, Adrian Edmondson said, we should have done a third series. I mean... We, Did they have we, a choice? No, they were being rebellious. It was exactly the attitude of like, fuck you, we're out. Oh, really? <laughs> like, it was literally like dropping the mic. So they made the choice only to do two. Yeah, I think that's pretty much just like that thing of like with, with UK shows, same with like the 40 Towers, same with like The Office, same with Spaced in a way, even though we, we, had, the, we had the chance to do a third one and we were so burned. I mean, I can't really speak for Simon and Jessica because I didn't write the show, but I was a big part of it. But I was burnt out after the second series of Spaced. And I, I really felt like I, you know, I put everything into that show. And, um, you know, I just can, I, every like job that I do, I exhaust yeah. myself to the point where I can't work for like months afterwards. But, but in America, <laughs> that's unheard of. Like, you no, know, I like, know. Well, we, we appreciate the offer of another uh, season, <laughs> but, you know, we're going to decline because we're tired. <laughs> we're a little tired. We'd like to get a you know a few months sleep. I think the reason is, is over here, like, yeah. a, a, a comedy show is like a, a big industry. Like, yeah. You know, something like Thirty Rock. You know, any like big U- uh, U.S. comedy show has like showrunners, like a writing staff, like 
you know, multiple producers, yeah. like a head writer. Yeah. Whereas Spaced was like Simon and Jessica writing, me script editing and directing, and our producer, Naira Park, and that was kind of it. So, and it's unusual for like a director to direct every single episode of a show. Yeah, absolutely. I, I directed every single episode of Spaced. Yeah. So even just doing seven episodes of that show, which is pretty jam-packed, I tried to make it as jam-packed as well, the opening credits of the goodies. Well, that, <laughs> and, I, and I think you do. I think that it's it's interesting that you say that because in watching it, I just actually watched the um, the final episode last night. Oh yeah, and just figuring out how do you wrap it up with these characters? How do you do it in a in a in a cute sort of emotional way? Yeah, but in, in order to give people closure on the thing. Yeah, and uh, but the the amount you get in there, you must have an amazing art director. You must have brought in people that to make that look as good as it did. Just from my own experience in making a a, a show with a lot more people than you had, you know, art direction set and really kind of the conception and uh, the the sort of things you were playing off of. It was all very meticulous. Well, the Im- the important thing and the thing that I I always like try to prime myself on as being loyal is that those people who worked on Spaced have worked on everything right up until the world's end. Like the same production designer who did Spaced. Is that true? Did everything that I've done right up to the world's end. Same editor on Spaced did the world's end and Scott Pilgrim. So like I've kind of, and same producer. So there's lots of people who worked on that show that I've continued to work with, even on the, uh, the Hollywood one that I did. So what's the Hollywood one? Uh, uh, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, that Scott was the Pilgrim, one right. like US one. Right. Although I, I call it the Hollywood one, even though it was shot in Canada and edited in London. Now, do you, see, <laughs> do you see these people? Like, it must be sort of exciting in a way because, I mean, when you did Spaced, what were you in your late twenties? Uh, no, mid twenties. Right. So you were like a kid. 10, yeah, I was like, tw- I think I was twenty-four when I shot the first series of Space. So turned- you're sort of some sort of weird, pro- <laughs> you know, prodigy savant kind of guy. Yeah, like Rain Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you have more social graces so far. You haven't started stuttering or having. I got to start counting your toothpicks in a second. <laughs> yeah, will you? Will you, will you do some tricks. Yeah, <laughs> some parlor tricks. Uh, all right. So, but that must be also exciting to to see the people that you built that alliance with creatively, because everyone's evolving. Yeah, and that you can, you know, the more equipment you have or the more uh, money you have, that the more you know chances you can take, and everybody's sort of perfecting their craft to a point. So that's interesting to me that. Because the like I talked to Simon about the sort of um, the I actually use the word oeuvre and I'm going to do it again. God, damn I like it. it. The oeuvre you created through parody. Oeuvre is such a satisfying word to spell as well. I like oh yeah, oeuvre is like it's yeah. one of the most beautiful like words written down. And it's one of those words that if you're not careful <laughs> and you use it, uh, it you know, just uh, glibly in conversation, people will hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Start the dropping oeuvre. But it's also one of those words you have to pronounce it in a French accent. You have to say yeah. oeuvre. Yeah, I, do you, can you speak French? Uh, un peu. Yeah, un peu. <laughs> See, I, to me, I, I only like, there's only a couple of phrases I have that are like sort of not that useful. One one is a chat, I have a, one chat up line. Yeah. I could say a, a, a chat up line to a girl, but I wouldn't have any follow up at all. Oh, really? So my one line would be, je pense que tu es un visage très joli, which means I think you have a pretty face. But if that worked, I would have nothing else to back you up. So if they responded to you in I French, like you'd just else. be like, duh. My, well, my second line, uh, yeah. my voiture est tombé en panne, means my car's breaking down, which is not going to help. Yeah, I don't, I don't not, think I could actually get Not at that point. If you went right from the first one to that one, it'd be tricky. I don't think I could get a French girl into bed with just those two phrases. <laughs> what I have with my car broken down? I th- my car's broken down. I think you have a pretty face. Oh, <laughs> jump into bed with me. <laughs> oh, well, the other one, of course, is Lady Marmalade. Voulez-vous coucher sure, avec moi sure. ce yeah. Everybody knows that one. Right. But <laughs> Sorry. We no, no, it's all right. I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> 
and I was sort of fascinated with this, uh, you know, with Simon as well, where y- you guys set the standard and and the sort of tone and and the context of what you do when you were like 24 years old. I mean, space is sort of a template for for what you guys yeah. you know went on doing for the rest of your career up until today. Yeah, we, I mean, we were very lucky in the. Um, I don't know whether it was a fluke or something, but somehow, and I know Simon touched on this as well. Somehow we made that show at a budget level where nobody really interfered at all. Like, it was basically that thing. And in a strange way, that has continued with most of the stuff that I've done, is where they've said, if you can keep on schedule and under budget, you can do whatever you want. Forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that will go on forever. Right. Th- those kind of things get tougher and tougher. But uh, definitely when we did Spaced, it was at kind of like, um, it was sort of low stakes, low budget. Right. And so we, you know, kind of like went a bit crazy with it. And it didn't really feel like making, in, in the nicest way, and this goes for some of the films as well, it felt like we we're making something for us, which then was going to be on TV. And it was, it was amazing. Like it was, and it was very, it was very odd making it because it was a film, it was, sorry, it was a show made without a pilot. There was no pilot. We just made seven episodes, which is unheard of and odd. Yeah, and it was just on TV, so I don't quite know. I mean, it was I, I was I was um, it was something where I it was the first thing that I had done, um, where I really felt like um I was I I I'd got my start like um, doing TV, and it were and I I sort of got my break basically by doing um, doing amateur films and making like this low budget no budget film when I was like twenty. What was that about? Uh, that was a a western, believe it or not. It was called A Fistful of Fingers, and I made it straight out of art college. I'd, I'd made a whole bunch of. Basically, how I got my break was that as a as a like teenager, yeah. I had made like my my parents had bought me and my brother like this beat up Super Eight camera, like a film camera. Yeah, like a yeah, like a Super Eight camera. Like, um, well, because by the time you were, I would imagine, didn't they have video cameras by the time? Yes, you were? but we couldn't. I, this is this is absolutely true, listeners. My family couldn't afford one. Oh. From, a, from a port, from a, I might have a posh name, but I was definitely from like lower middle class. Yeah, like um, my parents were both like uh, uh, like teachers, uh, like at the state school, yeah, our equivalent of state school, which is comprehensives in the UK. So, um, what they teach? They were both art teachers. Oh, but also spectacular. You know what's funny though? They did not want yeah. to be teachers. They yeah. did that classic thing of like, God bless them, is that they they were teachers. Yeah, and then they kind of dropped out of teaching to become like artists. Uh huh. And then they had to go back to teaching. Wait, again. let's talk about the art. What's hanging in the house? What's at the right house? My my mum and dad used to do like screen printing. So they they both like they're both really good artists. Screen printing like Warhol-y kind of stuff. They used to do like um, prints on like uh, handmade paper or my screen printing like like uh, scarves and stuff like that. So they used to. My mum used to design these very sort of like um, fancy designs with butterflies uh-huh. and uh she used to do also do these kind of um uh, desi- uh like illustrations on handmade paper of like uh dragons and dragons of dra- course that's she's very su- british she's super new agey my yeah. mom oh is she she is yeah what, is that a nice word for hippie um i would say she's like a hippie uh without the drugs uh-huh. so i don't quite what that makes her she's and like new new agey without ever having had any drugs in her life at all a lot of candles maybe some sage yes, exactly crystals, sage. crystals crystals oh, crystals, lady. crystals a crystal yeah. lady were you did you touch the crystals did she say maybe uh edgar you feel upset today sometimes my mum would dress like morticia adams 
but so, she didn't. But she wasn't doing a character. No, no. She my my mum was definitely like sort of like my my dad is completely straight. My uh-huh. dad would dress completely straight. Yeah, my mum sometimes would dress up like she was uh, Galadriel. Uh huh. That would be a good day. She'd be like sort of purple or sometimes white. She'd look but like that- she was from Tolkien, and then sometimes she'd be all in black like Morticia Adams. <laughs> so my mum always looked like she was doing cosplay or something. She still does. I love you, mum. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. So your mother is what really uh, was the portal to your interest in science fiction. And, and <laughs> in a weird way, but you know what's funny? Like, is what's really funny, and this is kind of where Hot Fuzz comes from, yeah. is that when you're, you know that kind of thing when you're a teenager, yeah. you automatically take a different stance from your parents. Got to. Yeah. yeah, you have to. Yeah. So in a strange way, I don't want to say I became more conservative or anything like that, but in a strange way, when my mum was so new agey and she would come up with things that were so like... And again, without without the aid of like sort of weed, <laughs> like she'd come up with things, conspiracy things about the town, some of which were kind of absolutely uh, correct or, you know, at, at least kind of like, like what? The, like what? Like stuff about fr- Freemasons and stuff. Like oh, so it might, she, but that's a riff that she somehow someone put that in her head. Oh yeah, she definitely a big conspiracy theorist, and a lot of the stuff in Hot Fuzz about the kind of like the. Um, the uh, you know neighborhood watch association comes from my mum, like sort of her conspiracy theorists about the Freemasons. <laughs> so there was the, the Masonic things. Uh, that's a trippy uh, uh, rabbit hole to go into. Oh, totally, and it and it does exist. I mean, there's something sure. like that. But so that would be the more believable side of it. The less believable side of it, when she'd say like, "Oh, the Masons run our town," you know, right. that's why they wouldn't let us have that extension on the house. It was the Masons, right? Right. And I was thinking, yeah, I could believe that. Then uh, the ones I wouldn't believe so much is when she said, "Oh, you know, so." So I saw a unicorn, unicorn on yeah. Basmati thing, and Mum, that's bullshit. Yeah. No, I I refuse to believe the unicorn one. So it's like sort of like you know. So, I, but I would I would have a healthy amount. I definitely like unicorns and Freemasons. <laughs> unicorns and free. That sounds like sort of a, yeah. a great like psychedelic prog rock album. Yeah, it probably by yeah. the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Yeah, yeah. Unicorns, unicorns and, and Freemasons Freemason. by the Strawberry Alarm. Or Clock. at least it should be like one of those songs that has several different parts. So I give <laughs> the main song and then like you know interlude. Yeah. Um, it's like yeah. this. It's like the second half of a. Um, um, it's on Yes songs. It's a yes. It's yes a lost, is a yes album. It's a lost yes album. But but as, <laughs> as you're about to say though, I mean, depending on when this started, you know, the one thing conspiracy theory, and I think science fiction have in common is that they're actually a way to to use your imagination. Absolutely, that is nonstop. It can go on forever. It's true, and I think a big part of everything that I've done is because I grew up in a very small town, which was kind of boring. And so escapism is literally that, is that I want to kind of escape into my imagination because my immediate surroundings are not that exciting. Even they're very beautiful. I, I grew up in a very like rural town, which yeah. is actually the one that's in Hot Fuzz. What's it called? Uh, it's called Wells. Yeah. W-E-L-L-S. The reason I say that is because whenever I say it, people say, oh, Wales? Yeah. Wells. It's which, amazing that this is a town that, of course, I don't know. Probably people from uh, from Britain know it, but sort of. it, it, but it, yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's more famous for being. Uh, you have the Glastonbury Music Festival, yeah. So my hometown is like ten miles away from there. But what I like about that is that knowing that it's your t- hometown is that like it seems like every small town in the UK has a castle. There's always a castle there not is, far. In this one, we have we have a there is a, there's a palace. There's the Bishop's Palace. Is and that where you shot that final scene in Hot Fuzz? That's right. Yeah, but yeah. it's just like that's just a little town, but there's a pretty old, beautiful castle there. <laughs> well, what's funny about that? Here's the funny thing: is I wrote that script. Mm-hmm. Like, here's the funny thing: having having rejected my mother's conspiracy theories as a teenager and going, yeah. "Mom, shut up! I don't. No, there's no unicorns." Yeah, 
<clears throat> maybe there's Freemasons. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. Yeah. I, I, um, when I was, when we was got the idea for that movie, mm-hmm. before I knew I was going to go back to my hometown and shoot yeah. it, I um, said to my mom, I said, you know all of those kind of like, theories about corruption yeah, and yeah. Freemasons and, and, and murder and everything else that you had heard about our county, would you write them all down? And she goes, oh, yes. And so she wrote this <laughs> of they will. Word document that was about 50 pages long oh my God. with the headline. This is the best thing. Yeah. The title of the document was Spooky Doings. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave me and Simon read it, and I said, "This is this is amazing." And it was just like her catalogue of every sort of like bit of kind of scurrilous rumor. It was almost like Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon, right? right. Do you know what I mean? Like this <laughs> yeah, kind of like yeah, amazing yeah. like tome yeah, of yeah. like uh, dark secrets. Yeah. And so we ended up like building this into the movie, and then the huge irony was is that then I ended up shooting in my hometown, not by design. It was always it was like the model. I would sort of say to the location manager, I said, I want to find somewhere like Wells. Yeah. And then eventually it came down to, what about using Wells? I said, well, if they'd let us, you know, because, you know, they have the cathedral there and the Bishop's Palace. And as it turned out, we were able to shoot there. So when there's that scene towards the end when they're all sitting around the table in their black robes, yeah, nobody in the town had read the script. I thought, oh my God, somebody's going to like see, hear us doing, saying basically the whole town is full of killers yeah and they're gonna like chuck us out on our ear yeah so when we're shooting at the bishop's palace the bishop of bath and wells himself like comes down the dude with the hat exactly yeah the dude with the crazy hat yeah he comes he said they say the bishop wants to come down and watch like a couple of um (laughs) takes and i was like okay and i just thought oh my god he's gonna like hear what the dialogue is and hear like Billy Whitelaw and Timothy Dalton talking about mass murder and he's gonna like they're gonna throw us out and then the Bishop of Bath and Wells comes down and he's in his like in his robes and everything and then he watches a take and then he gets a fun camera out and starts winding it and clicking and like the Bishop just standing there with a fun camera yeah, in his all in his all his finery, and then like snapping away on his fun camera well, it was amazing. Well, the well the great thing about the church of any kind, <laughs> especially one that's been around for for centuries, is that you know they they can absorb some hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, like they're they're like, oh, we get it. You're sure, you and gonna... you know, and with recent revelations, hot fuzz is nothing. So no, that's, that, okay. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But I mean, I think that if you really think back and you look at. Uh, uh, the satirists of, of you know of long ago. Oh yeah, I mean the church was almost the target a lot. It, oh, absolutely, it, it definitely. And and but that was more. That wasn't so much about a, a church conspiracy. That was about you know just a town conspiracy. <laughs> but I like well, hey, one of one of the things. This is absolutely true. One of the things that inspired that movie is that like um, when I used to be at school, and even when I was went to college, I, my Saturday job is I used to work at this supermarket called Summerfields. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in the movie, like the the supermarket that they have like a big fight in is where I used to work as a Saturday job. And then we went back to the- You were getting closure with this film. I get closure with everything. I mean, all of my movies, like World's End as well as me getting closure on certain things. Yeah, the the drinking. Yeah, no, it's it's very therapeutic doing these movies. When When I went to like, so my old supermarket manager, the character that basically Timothy Dalton is playing. Yeah. In, uh, and sadly he's passed away and he was always very supportive of me like he used to let me have days off if like because I'd started to do with these amateur films yeah, I'd yeah. started to kind of like um, he'd let me have days off like when it was like oh my film is playing at this festival or like my film is you know the like this is when I was like 17 or something was this like, the Super 8 film? yeah the I, western no this is before that I had done this Super 8 film 
for like a competition and I got on TV and I won a competition and I won a video camera. When you were like how old? Um, 1991, so I would have been like 17. Or and, si- maybe I was 16, actually. And what was that film? It was a film, I made it for Comic Relief, and it was about like, um, it was a little animation about like uh, uh, having more wheelchair access at cinemas. Mm-hmm. So I made this animation thing and I got on TV. Now the thing is, I had to ask my supermarket manager to say, can I have the day off on Saturday? because I'm going to be on TV in London. And yeah. he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he'd been like very supportive of letting me have days off at very short notice. Yeah. And what was very sweet about it is that he used to like, he was very supportive to letting me have days off if, or even letting me shoot in the store. Yeah. And like, and I, you know, I, I sort of had been on TV and so that had been in the local paper and stuff. But yeah. I remember once he, um, you know, he was very supportive of doing the films. He was even in one of my films as yeah. well, just playing a little part. Yeah. But then there was one time when there was like some like sort of, um, and they we literally mentioned this in Hot Fuzz, but there was like sort of like baby like sick. There was like vomit yeah. all over like yeah. the tills. Like this baby had thrown up all over the tills and I had to clean it up. Yeah. And when I was like cleaning up this pink like sort of vomit yeah. from the kind of that like, checkout, the manager walked past and really loudly said, he's not in Hollywood yet, is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he'd obviously been waiting for some kind of like image of me like sort of like this 17 year old would be whiz kid director like to wait until I was cleaning up some shit or some vomit and then he'd been waiting for that moment but the reason that he inspired Hot Fuzz yeah. is because he was a he was a freebasin and he used to also supply like um drinks and cheese and stuff for the Freemasons meeting and yet he was the least secretive Freemason because he would sidle up to me in the shop on a Wednesday yeah. and he'd say hey uh, got a knock off early tonight because of the meeting yeah. can't talk too much about it it's the secret meeting yeah. and I go right yeah. <laughs> and he knows I guess yeah it's uh, you know the old Wednesday meeting at the Star Hotel can't talk too much about it so he'd keep like telling me about this thing and I'd say to my mum I said I said, what goes on at the Star Hotel on a Wednesday? And he goes, oh, that's where they have the Freemasons meeting. So I'd sort of built up like this image of like, this is where the Freemasons meet. They meet in the conference room of the Star Hotel every Wednesday. Yeah. It must be like, oh my God, can you imagine? They're all in their black robes. Yeah. They're all chanting Latin. And then when we were like location scouting for Hot Fuzz, I went to the conference room at the Star Hotel and it was like the shittiest conference room you've ever seen. And just some guys. <laughs> yeah, just some, I never saw the meeting itself, but I saw the conference room and it was like anything that you'd get like a, a you know, a conference room at a Ramada Inn or something like right. that. No, it, was yeah, like, of it was like, and I just thought, do they really sit around in the robes yeah. and chant in well, this no, but room? That was, that was your imagination yeah. because, you, you know, that level of Freemasonry is no different than the Elks Lodge, really. Yeah, it, exactly, it, you know, same thing. Exactly, it, same it, thing. It, it, it's, it's about, it's about uh, you know, they're civic leaders sometimes, they're just workers, but in even as you go up the level yeah i mean like you can go as deep as you want but i like that the idea was that your imagination probably because you had seen films yeah was something like the devil rides out or the wicker man right exactly yeah so so that stuff (laughs) like it played in perfectly oh yeah because this recurring theme certainly in um in that film and in the new one yeah about not just conspiracy, but about authority, about you know who's in control, yeah, yeah. about you know the human spirit versus uh, you know either you know fascistic forces or yeah, yeah, alien yeah. forces or or forces of control. I mean that is a you know a classic theme 
uh, of satire, you know, of, you know, you know, we're the people, you know, who's in charge of our lives? What are we fighting against? But that came up twice very distinctly in, in Hot Fuzz and the new movie. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you, ha- do you find, you know, outside of, uh, you know, imagination that do you know that you're, when you guys set out to, to do parody, which is, you know, it can be a very, um, you know, sophisticated form of satire or a very base one. Do you know, do you and Simon know, like, you know, we're going to get deep with this? I think we do. I mean, I think in a way, like, with, with the films, what you end up doing with characters is the two things is you either, like, try and put, like, a better version of yourself on screen. Like, yeah. there are choices that the characters make that you haven't done in your real life. Like, say, Shaun of the Dead, I always thought was, like, um, I describe it as being a long apology to my ex-girlfriend for being a lazy boyfriend like <laughs> right okay. you know like sort of like you're like a, a complacent lazy boyfriend and somebody walks away and you go oh i fucked up and so like then Shaun of the dead was almost like a sort of a long apology to that ex saying hey i know i fucked up and in this movie i, I hope this character does better you know and in in the new one like sort of it's, it's almost like there's two things is like sort of like the you either dealing with kind of like you know the darkest kind of like sort of recesses of your character and like sort of almost creating this kind of like you know i think the gary king character in the world's end is is definitely based on people that me and simon know and have had in our lives and i think everybody has that person in the their life yeah the simon's character i've been that guy uh, yeah i mean I, I think i've been that guy at times as well i think and i also you know have a little more together than to have uh, spent too long being that guy well i, I definitely had a period when my sort of teens and 20s yeah. which i think a lot of people go through where you think hey i'm really funny when i'm drunk yeah yeah so i'm gonna get drunk every night for the rest of my life and then somebody like sort of I, I was lucky in that somebody said to me early on that shocked me like sort of said hey Edgar do you think you have a problem right you know and this was maybe in like my mid to late 20s that but I definitely used to contrive to get drunk because I thought I was funny at sure drunk. and there's a romanticization yes. of of the drunk wizard or the drunk yeah. you know uh, like that guy's free man yeah. Yeah, yeah well that's exactly but yeah. unfortunately Simon's character in in the world's end has carried that on till his past life got away forty from him. yeah and right. um, so there's elements of that and then I think also on the flip side so there's elements of like the of how you know when you're getting deep is that you kind of project like what's the worst version of myself become flesh like Gary King is like the the sort of the monster inside me and then on the flip side there's something where you want to be the you want to be uh, the rebel that he is that you can never necessarily be. Like, sure, so you want to live through him a little bit. Yeah, so there's that kind of vicarious thing in terms of there are elements where I'm, I, I would, I don't really want to be a rebel and go off the grid, but sometimes, you know, I wake up and look at my Apple Mac and thinking, I don't like the iCloud. Yeah. Where the fuck is my music? <laughs> fuck this. I want to like, I said, I don't like, I don't like not having my stuff. Yeah, who's watching me right now? I said, I, what have iTunes done to my record collection? <laughs> I went. I fucking. It's, it's like somebody burgled your house. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And you let them. I let them. Yeah, I said I fucking. I just rolled over for Apple, and you came in and fucked my record collection. Right. In the name of convenience. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I said, "Where's all my stuff?" Yeah. It's I, literally yeah, like I, I kept mine clearly. Well, I know. I. You know. I. I honestly. And then I feel like sort of such a fucking like sort of like potentially going off the grid thinking oh, yeah, so maybe physical media like yeah. I don't. I don't want like a lot of files. I want my. Yeah. I feel that about a lot of things where I feel like. 
we, we've, you know, like, so there's an element of Gary King. Well, it's, it's like the, the difference between an empire of clutter and an empire of information. Yes. You know, what, what do you, they're both unmanageable. And, <laughs> yes. and you, you, you never reference any of them. It, it's what, the, the physical stuff is comforting until it takes over and you have a problem with that. No, totally. It's like, I, I, I get that with the idea of archiving photos is I have like fucking thousands right. of digital photos. And For I'm thinking, what? Well, but I think I don't want to delete any of them. No, you can't. Because this is, this is my, these are all my like sort of like, you know, memories and stuff. But it's at the same time it's like my computer cannot handle like hundreds of thousands of photos well, well, well the, the great thing about techno hoarding versus actual hoarding is that uh, you know no one has to see that <laughs> you know what I mean you can be a hoarder on your on your hard drive and you know and get away with it but you know after a certain point with this kind of thing people are like dude you gotta get rid of some shit well I just think I've got you know like most people I mean there's that thing like, I, I really envy some people like you know, I think Nick Frost actually is like sort of is very forward thinking and doesn't get this. Unlike me, he doesn't get nostalgic at all. Really? He, he's that kind of person who will say, if you haven't like used it in the last five years, throw it out. I try to say that. But I have so much stuff in my, I have a, like a room in my house downstairs where it's just, it's just boxes. I haven't even, unlike you, I haven't even got it out. It's just like, I have it there. Yeah, I've got a storage space. And I think, oh, I can never, yeah. like, get... Oh, yeah, I have a storage space, It's just too. part of it here. I'm a hoarder, too. Yeah. Well, I think that... Well, that's interesting, because I envy those guys. You, know, you, never, you ever go to someone's house, and you're like, where's your shit? And they're like, what shit? And I'm like... How do you live without you know uh, you know investing meaning and 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 emotion into stuff that you've had for twenty years? I mean, how do you get through your day without knowing that book that you don't look at isn't there? No, I mean you know I, I, sometimes when I've sort of lived on the road or I've like sort of you know at times when I've been to LA and just had my suitcase with me that you realize how little you actually need and how great it is or that day yeah. the day before you actually leave the house you moved out of when all the shit is out yeah. of, of the flat or wherever <laughs> yeah. like you've moved out but you have one more night there you're like oh my god why didn't I just do this why didn't I live like this this is perfect <laughs> it's just a mattress and my clock I know why well, some people are, I mean there's so the, I guess in the back of my mind yeah that's the thing is that sort of like whereas there's parts of the characters like I don't want to be that guy and then on the flip side is like you know the whole idea with the, the, the Gary King character in the world's end is like you know like wouldn't it be great to like sort of like still be able to like flip the bird and like sort of say fuck you guys I'm going to live in the woods right exactly. <laughs> oh, absolutely but I think that's what, what you're speaking to which I which which I think is a, a real key to, to, to what you do is that that, that combination of, of real human emotion yeah and, and real empathy for people and because yeah. that's really what happens with the Simon characters and the Nick characters and a lot of your stuff is that no matter how over the top it may be you know these guys are people up against something very real yeah. and the fact that you know in your mind Sean of the Dead was sort of an answer to your behavior yeah, yeah. and an emotional relationship. Absolutely, yeah. That you have this, you know, really kind of elaborate uh, parody going on of zombie movies, but at the heart of it is is a very human sort of uh, predicament. Yeah, and and the new one is no different in terms of it's it's all of those feelings about like you know like when you go back to your hometown and it's changed without you. There's this sort of feeling of like guilt in a way of like that that oh. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't here and it changed and there was nothing I could do to stop it. But it's so many like the the film, the, the new one, The World's End, really came about from uh, exactly what happens in the movie is I, I went I, I moved to like London um, to sort of try and kind of like sort of start my career and stuff. And I would, you know, at first, like 
that summer of like kind of that I was last with my sort of friends at school like yeah, when yeah. you kind of like you're in the I'm in the pub every night with the same five friends and you think you're going to be as thick as these forever and then everybody goes to different cities yeah know? yeah and then when you come back like sort of like you reconnect and then with each passing year there's less and less people that come back right and like, I think maybe the first year I went away to London I'd come back like three times a year every yeah. holiday right and now it was like oh you know I'll just come back at Christmas to see my folks you know sure I'm using all the American terms for you guys, my my mum my and dad. Yeah. I was just saying and folks and holidays for you there. But really, I was going to say Christmas. Because I know like you don't have like half term. You call it spring break over here and stuff. Yeah. We, but, <laughs> thank you for translating. Say, I know. I know. We she say half term. I don't need to provide I just a, say glossary, any, any, a glossary. I, I, with I, it I just suddenly caught myself. that I thought any English listeners to your podcast, of which they're many saying, Edgar yeah. Wright has gone so fucking <laughs> American. <laughs> but what I was going to say was that I used to go back every yeah. like... Um, I used to go back every like. Uh, Your parents are still there. No, that's the other sad thing about it. My parents have now moved, so my and I have no family in my hometown. That makes a big difference. So I feel like the sort of the anchor has been completely right. cut. No I, reason. I, I feel sad. To, the only reason, the only connection I have now to that town, apart from the fact I grew up there, is that I shot hot fuzz there. But I don't have any reason to go back, which is which makes me sad in a way. But when I would go back. <clears throat> There used to be, uh, I'd go back quite frequently, and I remember, like, so it wasn't so much that I'd never left. You that horrible feeling that, like, you had never been there. You'd had zero impact on your hometown. Right. And when you go back yeah. and you think, and literally the stuff that's in the movie, and this is somebody that, this this is harking back to my days when I was, like, sort of, like, in inverted commas, a funny drunk. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Everyone so knows me. Everybody knows me. Yeah. And you go back, and the publican doesn't recognize you. Yeah doesn't remember your name and it's the same guy it's the same guy yeah uh, it's paul in the rose and crown now he knows me through hot fuzz yeah. <laughs> like there was a period where he'd forgotten who i was completely um and then like or, or like people from that you were at school with don't really recognize you and then crucially like a scene that's in the movie i had this instant where like somebody who had uh, i'd had a run in like a school bully i want to say he bullied me for years or something i lit but i had one violent run in with him like where he like roughed me up and so, and I came, like, and one time he saw me and I saw him and it was like, I think, and he just completely blanked me. And I thought, does he not recognize me or does he not care? Either way. You were hurt. I'm so pissed off. <laughs> I'm pissed off by that. I'm pissed off by the lack of recognition. I, I mean, don't want to get into another, like, fracas with right. him. I don't want to get, like, sort but, of roughed up the, again. the fact that you had, you know, that he terrorized you and clearly had no effect on his life at all. Absolutely. That's horrible. So, that is in the movie. Yeah, that's but great. I remember saying to my, I remember saying to a friend of mine, like in 1990, it must have been mid 90s. I remember yeah. saying to my friend, I said, it's kind of weird going back to Wells, isn't it? Because like I said, every time I go back, it just feels like body snatchers. <laughs> it feels like somebody came and replaced everybody with replicants, and that basically is the movie that we made this year. You know what's great about it, though, and in, in, in the same way, now that you frame it as a personal experience, is that you know the one crazy dude that <laughs> you know that everyone knew growing up. Like, there's that thing w- when I go back to Albuquerque, where it's like there used to be that kind of street wizard guy, yeah, yeah, or the yeah, guy yeah. that you know you, you you looked up to as a kid because yeah. he, he seemed to be off the grid. Yeah, is that you sort of utilize that as well? That there are these beacons, these people. Like, he, maybe he remembers you, maybe he doesn't. But the fact that that old weirdo is still around, you're like, ah. Oh, Ah, see, yeah, it's not all gone. No, no, totally. And he's I mean, the key to the whole movie, really. Yeah, well, that guy that that plays uh, David Bradley, who yeah. plays Basil, that was ba- was based on a guy who's also now dead, who's like sort of was was basically like the town drunk. There was right. this guy that used to come into when I used to work in the supermarket. He used to come in every day, 
And every day he used to ask me, <laughs> this is what was really sad about Lee, because he was properly alcoholic. And right. he was, there was like a car mechanic who was like a proper drunk. But the weird thing was, is that all he used to buy was like a big three liter bottle of cider. Yeah. That was his shopping every right. day. Yeah, that was but his every thing. day he used to come up to me and ask where the cider was. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was very strange thinking you know where it is you just want somebody to talk to which yeah, is yeah. Kind of he goes you and he used to have a really thick West Country accent and he was always like sozzled like always drunk but he used to come up to me and go hey excuse me do you know where the cider is and I'd be like oh it's just down there like two hours over opposite the pet food sir and he goes I thank you very much I thank you so much oh. and he's like got really wet eyes yeah so I used to kind of like I'd see him every day when I yeah. used to work in the supermarket and then I remember one night, this is why this guy had an effect on me. And this is when I was in my inverted commas funny drunk stage as a as a teenager. He was in like the pub, yeah. Like, and I was with some like friends and like a group of like teenage girls. And like this guy saw me and I saw him, and I said Basil, yeah. like exactly what they do in the film. His yeah. name was Basil. Yeah, I said Basil, and he saw me. And he came over and joined us, and he started telling like sort of like these wild stories to these girls but there was one thing that i remember vividly there's this guy who's maybe like like a 60 year old drunk like he pointed at these teenage girls and he said in my day i'd have had all of you (laughs) (laughs) right to their face right to their faces and i'm thinking wow that's that has stayed with me (laughs) right but they're also the what 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 that implies in this and this is one of those things that you do when you're younger and you see guys like that is like you know what did he live you know what is his secret life yeah and and you know what what wisdom does that guy have you know you make these assumptions about drifters and drunks and lunatics that they they are clearly different than everybody else so they must have some secret and 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 sadly as you get older you realize like well whatever it was it might have been a small period of time a long time ago and life is sort of beat him yeah. but you do see them as as revolutionary when you're younger oh totally and it's like it's almost like that basil more like the real guy more than the, the character that david yeah. plays in the movie is more like what gary king could become what simon's character could become if he doesn't kind of that's let, right let go that's right yeah yeah i mean it's funny i just showed at the new beverly i, I like i curate kind of like seasons down there and I, I did a whole season to lead up to um the world's end and one of the double bills that i showed that was like films that sort of in, not inspired but like definitely inspired the opening of the movie in terms of I wanted the opening of the movie to feel like you know like that perfect summer night like sort of like this is the night that he craves and so as a double bill I put on American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused right as both of those movies like do a really good job of like sort of um showing like the encapsulation of that summer night one is in like 62 and one is like 1976 but it's both teenage teenage exactly so it's kind of like the inspiration for the first five minutes of the movie is that I tried to kind of imagine my like 1990 summer night out in those terms but what's interesting in both of those movies is they both have that guy um, in American Graffiti, it's um, Paul Lamatt's character, John Milner. And then in, and in uh, Days of Confused, it's, it's Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey yeah. playing Wooderson. Now, but what's interesting about that is that then American Graffiti kind of like... Uh, and those co- are both sad guys. Exactly. But what I find fascinating is then American Graffiti inspires Happy Days. And the character in Happy Days, the Fonz, who is basically John Milner, he goes from what should be the sad guy 
to becoming the hero of that show. It's almost like Happy Days kind of completely gets it wrong in terms of they make that guy, they make the Gary King, the Fonz, who should be the sad guy who's like, yeah, it's cool to be like that when you're 20, but not when you're 40. Right. He becomes the hero of the fucking show. Right. He even gets his own spin-off cartoon in the 80s. Yeah. Like Fonz with his time-traveling dog. <laughs> it's like, so I always thought that was fascinating. Hey. But like, hey. Yeah. But it was, but it's 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 Fonz and the Happy Days Gang. I had completely forgotten about that show until the AV Club did an article about silly cartoon spin-offs, and they had a clip. The cartoon from, of the Fonz. Yeah, I'd completely. I, I don't remember that at it, all. It, you know what? But it was it was a sun a horrible kind of sense memory of like I would spend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. I remember watching that in the mid eighties. Well, but that's interesting because like even the jump from Milner to uh, to Winkler. Yeah. They kind of gutted that character a little bit. That's another great name for a folk album, from Milner to Winkler. That's a Jethro Tull prog rock album. It's like the whole, and then the whole of side two is just one suite. It's like a 25 minute track. Right, and it's just called 1962. (laughs) 1962 to 1974. 1962 overture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Milner to Winkler. But but they kind of gutted that character and clowned him up a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a sympathetic character, the Fonz, once you saw his other side, that he had this kind of, you know, Winkler played him beautifully. Mm. But but the Milner character was, was a sad warning. Yes. And, and like, I don't don't be this guy because but I think it's interesting that the analogy is is that on some level um, you know Happy Days is is a spinoff of of, uh, of of American Graffiti but it's it's not a parody it's sort of a it it, it took a lot of the emotional weight it kind of leveled it yeah 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 that that in well, once you start to get into Mork appearing right like, well yeah sure but but the, the, even before they jumped over the shark Mork had already appeared in the in right the, in the show <laughs> yeah exactly but but the point is that well that that's you know, not sort of completely out of line with the with the new movie. I mean, yeah, aliens yeah, no. can, they're not endearing but, <laughs> but, or or improvisational aliens. But but the thing is, is that when you do parody, that you know you get you you somehow manage to to not make the characters so broad that yeah. they have no heart. And I'm not saying Henry Winkler didn't have a heart, but there's there was no menace to Happy Days really. You know what's funny? The one thing about Happy Days is when I when I was a little kid, that was probably one of the first TV shows I remember watching. And when I was a little kid, I had no I didn't. That was that was like one of the few American shows that I would watch. Right. But I wasn't aware when I was a little kid that that it was set in the past. I thought that was that's the what's pre- America. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought America was. And in fact, you know, it's not a million miles away. You still have Mel's Diner and everything. Sure. Like, there's still that kind of there's yeah. still that kind of like sort of fifties design classic thing. Yeah. So I would watch, and also I was confused because Scott Bio had a seventies haircut. Yeah. But the, but the point is that you you thought that uh, that that's how America was. Yeah. I knew what you were a little kid then. Yeah, yeah. I was like. Yeah, I was born in 74, so like that was uh, one of the first TV shows that I saw. Well, you know, I think that what, you know, what I wanted to get back to is that, you know, in defining this sort of uh, the world of of nerd culture, you know, that you seem to be, you, you know, kind of uh, a leader in. <laughs> that A nerd leader. Yeah, that you have the, you know, you have the fortitude and you're grounded enough. Like, I really like this whole idea of... You know, having this mother that sort of you know promoted you know yeah. involuntarily the use of your imagination oh, yeah, yeah, into all did. these different areas, and then you're able to contextualize it, but you're able to sort of you know feed emotion into it uh, that you know is very human. That it seems like there's a real effort in all the movies to to ground it in the humanity of Frost and 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 Peg and their dynamic. Now, now I know that they have from talking to Simon that that there's a, a very long and very I don't know if it's complicated, but it's a deep emotional relationship between. Two dudes. Now, how did you come into that? I mean, 
like because they they exist in and you obviously use them well but were you part of are you a, a triangle are you did you find them together how did that work you know i think sort of um you you know you just made me think about something with my parents remember we'll come back we'll come back loop back to that but with simon i had met simon first i had like made like i i basically got my i'd done these like super eight films i'd like sort of like gone to college i made this like silly movie when i was 20 moved to london and uh, even though the movie wasn't i was was as good as i hoped it would be i had got me my break in terms of like some other comedians saw it there's those guys matt lucas and david walliams yeah they saw my movie and they asked me to do their first sketch show this was when i was 21 now funnily enough like i went to see like a stand up show that matt lucas and david walliams were doing and in the bar afterwards simon pegg was there yeah and i knew him cuz i'd seen him doing stand up on tv yeah and he did stand up about our region. We're both from the West of England, which is kind of like the West of England is kind of like making kind of rube jokes, basically, sure. almost like doing hee haw jokes. Right, the South. Like, yeah. yeah, the South. It's like sort of like that it's you, you would speak in a thick accent. Like, if, like a, if a headliner, uh, like if American uh, hack headliner went to England, they're like, where do the idiots live? Or yeah. where are the, you know, the exactly. simple people? Yeah. Exactly. You yeah. could do like the sort of blue collar comedy tour right, kind right. of thing. So I'd seen Simon, so I went up to him and said, hey, uh, I saw your stand-up uh, on the stand-up show. He goes, I come from the West Country too. And uh, and he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so like, he sort of like, in a very polite way, kind of goes, yeah, kid, whatever, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And he said, thank you, but it was like, who's this, who's this, who's this kid talking to me? And what is he, 10 years younger than you? What is he he's, older than you? What are you? How old are you now? Uh, I'm 39. So he's four years older than me. How old? Four? He's four years oh, old. Oh, that's yeah. not that much older, yeah. So he must have been, you know, I was like, so he was only like 24, 25 when he was like starting. But he was a comic. He was hard. He was <laughs> at the club. You're just like, who's this newbie? So then, like, a cut to a year later, I end up directing him in this show. I do this show with Matt and Dave called Mash and Peas, and then I do this other show called Asylum, and Simon is in it. Yeah. And then he remembers me, and it's like, oh, you're that, you're that kid. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And... Yeah, I remember vividly that like he was actually sort of doing he did the show and he was actually shooting something else at the same time and he was so great in it and this was the thing where I found a real connection with him is that we bonded over a couple of movies like we bonded over the the first thing that we really bonded over you know very kind of um, symbolically was George Romero's Dawn of the Dead and I never really met anybody else that loved that movie as much as I did like my brother didn't love Dawn of the Dead that much, but like Simon was like, I love Dawn of the Dead. Was that the first one or no? A, the his, second one, uh, the, the, the 1978 the, one, the one the in the shopping mall. mall. Exactly. Well, that's it because like I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, of course they do, but that was a very conscious satire. Absolutely, it's and, a satire and, on consumerism, right? Yeah, okay, and, and like the me decade and everything, right. and just like I mean, to me, that's like that film is still like. Oh, I also think that film is like a desert island film. Yeah, it's like Robinson Crusoe. Sure, they're in, they're on that mall and they can't get off. Right, and it's like they have all this fruit and stuff, but you know how long is that? How long is still, the novelty no going to last? Yeah, there's no hope. Yeah, but so I did this show with Simon, and uh, because he was doing another show at the same time, he was like he was really good in the show, but I could see that he wasn't that. He wasn't that invested in it at the time, but mainly because he was exhausted. Yeah. He was like doing this other show. He was coming down to do our show on weekends. He was also doing stand-up gigs at night. And I remember like one time he, he just like anytime he wasn't filming, he was like sleeping. <laughs> but he was still really great in the show. And, uh -huh. and, and we'd started to sort of circle around each other in terms of like. But I remember vividly that we had like a rap party for the show. And I think some of the episodes had been out. And I remember vividly that Simon came straight up to me at the rap party and said, 
you were a genius like that which was so like sweet because it was like he'd actually watched the show back and said oh shit yeah you know like this is really good yeah or like you know it was just just the nicest thing he could have got you like he you know he saw that what you brought to it was was beyond what he was experiencing it was very sweet and it was sort of the start of something in terms of even before he'd said that i had been watching him like act and i thought this man is like my ideal leading man and even before i knew what you know anything was going to be i was thinking i want to make a film with him in it because i the movie that i'd made when i was 20 this western was starring all of my school friends and college friends hardly any of which wanted to be actors like it was all just like was it a riff on the spaghetti western oh yeah totally yeah. it was like a spaghetti western shot in the leafy english countryside yeah it was it out, course, is it in the world can people watch it uh you know it's on it's on vhs and oh, yeah. occasionally it crops up on youtube uh-huh. and I, I keep taking it down because i intend to release it on dvd Probably in time for its 20th anniversary. But it's like something people time. know of. Did you, what, did you shoot that on 16 or 16 what? 16 mil, yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, was, it was actually released. I don't want to say it was released in cinema. It was released in cinema. Uh-huh. It was in one screen in, uh-huh. in London. Later, once you became known, someone, you showed it or when you made it? You no, when it. I made it, it was, oh, yeah. it was released at one cinema. Uh-huh. It was kind of how I got my break. Is it, it strangely, a distributor picked it up and they showed it at this cinema called the Prince Charles, which used to only charge at the time like the the... The ticket prices were like two pounds. So let's get back to this idea that, you know, what was it in Simon? Oh, Simon. Because, because like, I can see, like, even in watching Spaced and everything, that, you, you, you know, he's a guy that, that fares well in a world that's against him. Uh, he's he, like a great everyman. I sort of thought immediately, uh-huh. I kind of thought of people like, he's like, you know, and I know this is a lofty comparison, but I think he's that good. I think, like, Simon's like a Jack Lemon type. Sure. Do you know what I mean? He's like somebody who can be really funny and really dramatic um, but you totally he's totally, vulnerable yes absolutely vulnerable and also relatable like mm-hmm. you just think and I'm, I know that guy so I just like I knew that I wanted to do something with him and then weirdly that then how I met Nick was that Simon was so good in Asylum with Jessica that somebody suggested they do a show they started writing it so then like over the next like three years whilst they were writing and I went off to do other like comedy shows with actually which is an interesting period because I did comedy shows with much older comedians. Was that ba- Bailey? I did. Well, Bill, Bill Bailey's a little bit older. I did Bill Bailey. I also did a series with Alexi Sale, an mm-hmm. entire series. His know. final... Do you know him at all? No. Alexi Sale in the UK is basically the kind of like the, the guy who started the altern- alternative comedy. Okay. So he's like... He really is the groundbreaker. Uh-huh. And he was like sort of... And still is very famous like sort of... Uh, he's kind of... He actually just made a return to stand-up after like 15 years. Oh, wow. But he was he's in The Young Ones, in fact. Okay. He plays the landlord in The Young Ones. But okay. in the UK, he's forever famous for being basically the first alternative comedian. So he's got this godlike status. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a series with him. But, you know, at the time, I was like 23 and Alexi was like 53. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was... And then I also did like one episode of French and Saunders. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I sort of worked with some like older comedians that I, they'd seen other stuff they'd done said, oh, you know... This kid's doing some interesting stuff on cable. Let's do get to do these big BBC shows, and it was a it was an interesting period because it was interesting experience because I felt I did start to feel like I I I can totally direct these shows, but I'm I feel like I'm too young to be doing these shows in a weird way. Well, they probably had limitations in that you know they weren't servicing your ideas. Yeah, but also 
in a stranger with some of those, especially with French and Saunders, like it seems it seems silly to impose your style on that show because it's already well right, established. Well, right. So you had that realization early on that's like, wow, I could go on as a director and just service pre existing yes. uh formats forever. Yeah. Because I'm efficient at what I do. But if yeah, I want yeah, to do yeah. what I want to do, I this is not the life for me. Well, strangely enough, just before Space happened, there was like an incident that happened on French and Saunders, which like like some people around me were saying, this is this is a terrible mistake, Edgar. Is that I I didn't really want to do French disorders. They wanted me to do their Christmas special, and I re I was so exhausted from having done other shows. I really wanted to go on holiday. Yeah. I just wanted to go away with you guys us. with your vacations and turning opportunities down is so not American. I know. <laughs> I just like it's of, beautiful. I respect it. It's like yeah, I'd like to have a big <laughs> opportunity, but you know I'm a little tired. I kind of had a plan to get away for a while. Well, only because I just done this other show. No, and, no, I get and it. I like I was like I like it. I think it's great. I think it's a reasonable way for humans to live. Well, you know what it was. It was like. I was going out with an Australian at the time and oh. she was going back to like see her folks and stuff so it was like do I go to Australia with my girlfriend or do I do the French and Saunders Christmas special I probably you know it was fine I'm not with her anymore so I probably should have done French and Saunders <laughs> no so, you shouldn't <laughs> but uh, we're, still might, good, we're still really good friends actually you we're might still, be if you had done that who knows you might be doing their Christmas special this year hey listen though <laughs> I'm so incredibly loyal that my my ex-girlfriend continued working on everything we did even like kind of like years after we split up loyal and apparently emotionally detached <laughs> I think <would> be. Um. <laughs> so I did this French and Saunders thing and they wanted me to do the film bits mm-hmm. but they also wanted me to do the live TV bits now I am not a live TV director and I did it once on Bill Bailey, and I have to say that doing live TV direction in the studio is an art form of which I am not a master. And I realized having done it once and seeing other people do it, I said, that is an art form in itself. Doing live TV direction is something else. So I sort of said, oh, I want to do it, but I don't really want to do the live TV bit. And the producer said, you know, it's fine. If, if you feel like you don't want to do it, like we can get another a director in to do the live bit. So I did all the film bits with French and Saunders. And then as it came to it, like leading up to like, this is like the week before Christmas. I was like, so like, I was trying to finish off all the film bits. And I was like thinking, I really don't want to do the live studio bit. So I said to the producer, oh, um, do you think you can get another director to do the live bit? Because I, I really don't want to do it. I'm just like burnt out. And I want to like focus on the film bits. And you get somebody else to do the live studio bits. And I have no ego about it. I'd happily let somebody else do that half of the show. And suddenly like this producer sort of turned on me like he, he'd never offered me that lifeline and said oh you're going to walk out on French Saunders and said no 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 I thought you said he goes well you know you know, Dawn and Jennifer are going to be very upset ah. and suddenly like the word got round like literally somebody else at the B- this is when I was at the BBC they played but, you is what they, they played, did. and then yeah. later that day I had like both my agent and also another producer saying hey uh, I hear you walked out on French and Saunders I said no no no, no I'm still here I'm still trying to finish the and film and then the bit. same dude that you had the conversation with was doing this yeah. The same dude you said, I, you know, it's okay. Just yes. Do the- so, so then he like made out and the word got around that I, this 24-year-old kid, was walking out on French and Saunders. He set you up that. He thought that he was going to just did. be able to bully you in the last minute no, to do did. the live No, he did. He totally did. And I felt, I completely fell for it. So then the thing was, is I, I finished doing the film bit and somebody else did the, the, the studio. But it was that thing where even my agent was said, are you sure you want to do it? I said... I said, they said that somebody else could do it. Like, so I was. Welcome to show business. Here's the funny thing, though. It's yeah. literally of this experience where, as the end of my period of like working with older comedians, with this kind of controversial thing of like, Edgar Wright walked out of French and Saunders. Literally, 
and so I was thinking, oh man, have I got have I got a bad reputation all of a sudden? Yeah. But that January after Christmas, I started working on Spaced. So that was like, and and then just suddenly working on like Space with Simon and, and Jess was like, oh, not only is this like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but it's also this is a, a show that's about the age group that I am. Mm-hmm. Like this is a show about people in their mid twenties, and I am in my mid twenties. This is what I should be doing. Right. So ever since then, I kind of like it was a lesson in terms of like I've got to like sort of just be myself on screen do you know what I mean or like sort of how I met Nick though I met Nick through that show like Simon and Nick had been friends for like sort of they'd been friends for 20 years Nick had never acted before yeah and he was like a waiter right right Simon you know plucked from you know yeah from Chiquitos in Staples Corner Mm -hmm. and when I first met Nick he said nothing like he was so shy and I met him in this bar with Simon and Nick just is at first a very shy person. And I will, I will admit, and I've always said this to Nick, that I was wrong, but I, had, I did say to Simon, I said, hey, um, do you think Nick can pull this off? Because like, I met him and he didn't say anything to me. And like that to me doesn't scream comedy performer. Uh-huh. And I was very happy to be proved wrong. But I, I always like, reg- no, I don't regret it at all. But I always, I'll always admit to not being convinced at first. So that's when Nick came into it and like, you know, sort of. So it was during spaced. Do you, do you have, I don't know if Simon told the story on the podcast, but Simon essentially lied to get him the part. Is no, that no. there was this? He didn't say that. <laughs> our version of like um, SAG is like um, equity. That's yeah. our union. Uh-huh. And you know that thing where you have to kind of like, I guess that you have to change your name if there's somebody else in the union. Yeah. The same name. There was another Nick Frost in Spotlight, and to get like Nick the part, who was Nick, who was previously just a waiter from Chiquitos. Like Simon said that like the, the Nick Frost that we were hiring for space was the Nick Frost that was in Spotlight. <laughs> so this poor guy, apologies to the other Nick Frost out there, but basically like sort of the other Nick Frost came in and used your name. Like this other guy had been in like soaps and drama yeah, yeah, series yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like The Bill or uh-huh. like sort of like, you know. I wonder of, if he's bitter somewhere. I don't know. I don't really want to find out. <laughs> but I apologize. To, well, I, I don't feel guilty. It wasn't my trick. But like, apologies to the other Nick Frost. Well, you got Nick Mate, Nick. you know what we should do? We should cast the other Nick Frost in the next I, one. I think if that happens <laughs> it's, it's because the, of this podcast, that would be great. You should, it's, give, the le- it's the least we can do. Right. And give him a scene with, the, with your Nick Frost. Yeah. Have but a, it could be like that mirror scene in Duck Soup. They can like, do like... Yeah. Oh my God, you're referencing Marx Brothers movies. There you go. You're uh, You're uh that's the thing about see I don't know what for a couple things that let's get back to before do you have to be somewhere I know I'm okay oh, the you said you wanted to come back to your parents and your imagination and, and I how. think I, I one thing that I think sort of in a, in a roundabout way inspired me is that my, my my parents are like always I love them dearly and stuff they always had a tough time financially and it always felt like they were penalized for being artists like they would like they were teachers and then they didn't want to be teachers they wanted to be artists they sort of dropped out of teaching to be, be artists and then the business went kind of like quickly south so they went back to teaching again and then they dropped out then they hated teaching and stuff and, and at one point my mum this is the worst like I don't know how this can happen it seems impossible but my mum and my dad both taught me at my school at the age of 13 can you imagine how embarrassing that is? I've heard this from a lot of kids who who have parents who are teachers. That how does happened. that happen though? Like well, I even it's a I small even, town. I know, where yeah, else I are you going to go to school? Well, the thing was is that like they were in in my school. There were like two streams. You know, like you'd have the A stream and the B stream. And like in my and so I actually went to the head headmistress and said, 
you know, it was like, and said, is it, can I be in the other stream and not be taught by my parents? Right. And they said, oh, no, sorry. It's already set up. It's been predestined by the yeah. Masons. Oh, God. It, it was it, the fucking Masons again. Yeah, it was. But they, but, they, they, they laugh at me even in death. Well, that, well that's interesting. So <laughs> the one thing that my mum did is the worst is that she called me by a pet name in front of the class. Oh, God. She called me by the name. She said, she said, all right, pickle. Like, oh, I was thinking, no. In front of like girls. The pickle. other thing is that when I went home, my did it mu- stick? Uh, it's actually in Shaun of the Dead. We use pickle. It was the other thing that was funny is my mum used to then have an opinion of all of the girls in the class, mm-hmm. and there was somebody that I, I had a crush on, and she would sort of say, "I don't know why you find Ishtar Notman so attractive. I think she's miserable. I think <laughs> Vanessa Burton is much more attractive. Why don't you go out with Vanessa Burton? She's really pretty. You know, she only lives around the corner. I just think Vanessa Burton is much prettier than Ishtar Notman." Isn't that a great name, Ishtar Notman? Yeah, it's a great name. I don't know what happened to her, but I did get off with her once. Oh, yeah? yeah. What does get off mean? How far is made that? Made out. Oh, just like made out. Like Oh, okay. <laughs> get off here has a very different meaning. No, get, getting off means like, uh, you know, like first base. Then like second and third would be tops and fingers. Tops and fingers? Yes, There's exactly. another record. Tops and fingers. That's Write another that down. prog rock album. <laughs> tops and fingers. <laughs> Tops and Fingers is by Vanilla Fudge. Right, a little more rocky. It's a little more rocky. <laughs> Maybe the Faces. Tops and Fingers is a Faces album. Yeah, that's right. right but, Ronnie but, Wood is amazing on Tops and Fingers. He's great on it. Yeah, everything he does. Rod is Stewart is Tops and Ronnie Wood is Fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, that's interesting. So, from your parents, you learned not only do do artists get a sort of shame, yeah. for being artists, and that they had to sort of make compromises in order to do what they do, but they were also very encouraging. I mean, it must have been a very creative environment, uh, and you had you had probably no second thoughts about pursuing it. No, I mean, in a way, that's the thing is that like sort of to watch my parents struggle and kind of be like sort of like semi bankrupt frequently did not dissuade me or my brother from pursuing like an artistic career what's your brother do he's like an animator and illustrator he does a lot of stuff in the movies actually he actually sort of designed the 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 blanks in in the world's end oh really but he actually does the he does the storyboards with me as well like he he's amazing like he's really he's older and like he's just a great artist he even designed the credits in the world's end oh that's great and your father was what kind of artist he would do like um you know he's an illustrator he's a really great artist and stuff but like i you know um and uh and actually, now they're retired and stuff. They sort of gone back to like you know, kind of like drawing again and stuff. Without know? the pressure, without the pressure. Are they enjoying it? Yeah, you know, I've had to bail them out on many occasions. Well, but it's that's, nice that's, that's you exactly can. what you have to do. Yeah, it's such you, you know, you're like giving the, back to the arts. Absolutely, <laughs> they, they 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 supported me for long enough, so I have to support. They them earned now. it. Yeah. Okay, so when you say art college, yeah. Because it seems to me that you know, you're you're very sophisticated around the language of film, around the history of film, around you know the the depth of what a film can mean, you know both uh, you know culturally, historically, and aesthetically. You know, when did that start for you? What was the moment that did that? Uh, well, I think is a because my parents used to kind of like actively encourage like us to see movies, and in fact, they used to do like craft shows as artists, and because they couldn't afford a babysitter, they used to dump me and my brother at the cinema and just leave us there all day. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's like when, you know, in the summers of like sort of the late 70s, early 80s, we would see every summer movie because it was cheaper than a babysitter, but they would just leave us at the cinema. Right. And using my dad would miss time it, so like halfway through the second half of a double bill, dad would come back and say, oh, gotta go. And I go, no! I want to see the rest of the Incredible Hulk! The Hulk hasn't even changed yet! Sorry. For fuck's sake! I wouldn't say for fuck's yeah. sake when I was six. Yeah. But then um, 
I didn't, we, you know, again, this is my sub story. Get ready for the violins. My family could not afford a VCR. <laughs> So mm-hmm. most of my education was watching what was on network TV. Like I would watch all the films that were on network TV because we didn't have a VCR. Me and my brother would, if there was a, a horror movie on at four o'clock in the morning and we had school the next day, we would stay up until five thirty to watch that movie and then go into school with like three hours sleep. So in pur- a head full of gore. Yeah. If Piranha was on at four o'clock in the morning on ITV, well, I was going to stay up and watch it because I had no VCR to record it. Then when I went to art college, I think sort of, I went to this art college, um, a place called Bournemouth, it's by the seaside. And it's an interesting kind of college because come when it gets hot, like everybody fucks off yeah. and the campus is deserted. And, and as you can see from my tan, I'm not a sun person. Yeah. So I would use that period just to kind of, they had a library there where they had lots of like films. So I would just like watch absolutely everything. So it wasn't actually even part of my course. I would just like try and like watch, I would sort of try and do a thing at college where I would try and watch like three movies a day every day and when, is that about the were you starting to sort of realize the 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 depth of the the intellectual conversation around movies because i think just the the history is right. like sort of like obviously growing up i gravitated more towards like um genre films whether it was like sci-fi or like western through sergio leone or like usually like through like sort of genre films but then like at college i started trying to watch kind of like something of everything like to try and like but did you go through the bicycle thief and kane and and, yeah. and rome open city and yeah, the, yeah. The, the sort of weird standards of uh the auteur movement and that kind of thing guitar I, and that I, stuff yeah although i remember vividly we had this great kind of like um um a teacher at kind of like art college called pete stringfield who like um he <laughs> He would, we, we used to be, there used to be this lecture hall, which was like, had no air conditioning. And I remember vividly them showing like Tokyo Story, which is one of those kind of like sort of like art house classics or yeah. like, you know, not art house, like a world cinema classic. And because there was no air conditioning, I swear to God, like everybody would be asleep within 10 minutes. Sure. So there's this very sort of strange thing of like projected on the screen is this kind of like classic of world cinema with like a room full of snoring students <laughs> and mainly because there was no we don't have aircon in the uk it doesn't seem to exist at all yeah so it's just like it's fucking hot in that lecture theater and like and also that classic thing where people come come yeah, especially film students is like oh i can do i can sleep during that yeah film. well it's That's hard my... to get through some of that shit man <laughs> no no it is absolutely but especially when people have been fucking drinking all night they think like oh tokyo story is the perfect snooze i'm gonna go in and I've, that's my my attendance is noted yeah but i'm gonna sleep through the whole thing but here's here's i'll tell you a story about like art college that's absolutely true is that so i wanted to go onto this film course i wanted to I, I knew i wanted to be a film director when i was a teenager and and the real the real like epiphany for me was hearing about sam raimi making evil dead when he was 18 i was like oh my god i didn't i thought that to be a director you had to be born in hollywood i thought that mistakenly thought that somebody like spielberg had been dropped off by a stalk at universal studios and just becomes a director yeah like that he he had you know of course everybody has a story of how they start but it was sam raimi's story that i heard and thought i want to i want to do that and so I had applied to this art college to do this. They had this. He made it seem possible to you. Absolutely. Because right. he's also, he's a kid from Michigan. Yeah. Like he's not from like, he's not from Hollywood. He's right. not kind of like, you know, from Los Angeles. He's like a kid in Michigan who raises the money for his first feature selling air conditioners, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he just makes a movie. You, you know, don't like, have where you live. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I wish, <laughs> Sam, I wish you'd come around to our house <laughs> yeah. with your air conditioners. But so I had applied to this course in Bournemouth um, this film TV course and I'd applied and they said oh you're too young to be a director so I was 18 at the time so you're too young 
why don't you do this foundation course? So that was like, it's like an audiovisual design course. It's like kind of like a, a lower degree. It was like kind of doing like a, kind of almost like a city college thing. Right. So I did that for two years and I was down in Bournemouth for two years. And that was a great period of like, everybody else fucks off to the beach. I'm going to learn how to edit. Whilst the edit suite is completely empty. Yeah. Like everybody is suntanning. I am going to learn how to edit. So you used the, the education for what you were supposed to use. Yeah, yeah. But I was doing kind of on my own. I would right. go to the library and I would sit in the... I, I would sit in the library and watch movies like sort of... They used to have those kind of little viewing booths. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would used to go and watch VHSs in there. And I remember vividly that um, some kid on my course had all of the kind of... What was the video nasties, all the horror films yeah. that had been banned in the 80s in the UK. Uh-huh. And he had them all. So I used to borrow them and, and watch them. And some of them, like things like I Spit on Your Grave, which is a horrific yeah. rape revenge film. Yeah. I remember watching it in the viewing booth in the library. And I tried to angle the TV away because there was <laughs> there was like a window in the door. <laughs> yeah. And I thought if like a, if a, if a, a, a particularly a female student or any student came up and saw that I was watching this movie, I'd be so like mortified. So I try and angle the TV away so they couldn't see what I was watching. But um, here's the funny thing. So I was there for two years. I reapplied for the higher course, the one I went to do in the first place. Now I was 20 and they said, you're too young to be a director. Come back in five years. But then, you know, five years later, I was doing space. <laughs> yeah. But here's the, here's the other, like, twist of that tale, is that in their brochure for that, uni- for that college, they have managed to include me in the alumni for the course that I never did. Yeah. So even though I was rejected from that course twice, yeah. they've worded it in such a way. And I only knew about this because on Twitter and stuff, people say to me, hey, I'm doing the film and TV course only, only because you did it. And you didn't. And I would email back and said, I never did that course. They said, oh, well, the brochure makes it seem like you did. So wow. I, And I looked at the brochure and they did. And I've thought about complaining and getting them to take it down. But then I thought I, I'd rather have the smug satisfaction that they had to put me on there. Ah, <laughs> you win. You I win. win. Yeah. So what is it about gore that's so... Uh, <laughs> because there's that moment in um, in Hot Fuzz where that the top of that steeple comes oh, down. Oh, yeah. And you know it's very clear that that you know that was at least two days of shooting that you needed to do, <laughs> and there was a lot involved in in some of the gore elements that you know you're very sort of meticulous about making it um, just slightly uh, over the top and, and and respectful as a homage to that type of film. But you love that shit. I do. You know what's funny? I don't know whether I'll then. There's probably some deeper reasons for this, but I'd say one thing just in terms of like the addiction of response is that I remember when I used to, I used to make like films um, when I was a sort of teenager and I used to show them at school. Yeah. So I used to make these kind of like, you know, one, once I'd won this video camera on this competition, yeah. like, I, I, that, that thing where I did about the wheelchair access, I yeah. won a video camera. Yeah. So once I had the camera that I couldn't afford, like I was just going to go crazy and make shitloads of films with my school friends. And some of the ones I used to make used to be like really silly and lots of gags, but they used to be used to be quite gory because I don't know, I liked horror films and stuff. And showing them to like an audience, I used to like invite people to come and watch it in school, like of an evening and like charge like a pound of like uh, admittance and getting laughs was cool. Yeah. But when there was gory bits, people went, yeah. Hearing that audible, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Is just addictive. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You it's just like pu- punching them in the brain. I just there's something about it. And yeah. I, I think sort of it's because in the comedies, a lot of the comedies that I grew up with that would be like sort of funny and scary. Like the the key ones would be, I mean, not just Evil Dead and well, Evil Dead Two specifically, but my one of my favorite films of all time, just because it is so 
prickly, it's funny and fucking terrifying and violent at the same time is an American Wealth in London. Oh yeah. Now yeah. when I saw that as a kid, I just I just couldn't comprehend like how and what how you would have all of those tones in one movie. That it's like really funny and the the leads are really sweet, like Griffin Dunn and Debbie yeah. Norton are really sweet, and then one of them fucking dies, like really like horrifically. Yeah. And then it gets funny again, and then there's another really violent incident, and then it gets sexy, yeah. and then it gets violent again, and I, and then it gets funny again. I was just thinking, I love this movie. It's just a ride, you know. Good, right, because like, you could do everything in it. You do everything in it. So I think So that you know, was your key. I think so. I ah. think there's also just a thing of like it's just uh an element of mischief and having grown up in a small town like which is kind of boring you want to kind of like you both love it but you want to rip it to shreds at the same time right so there's a you know there's a feeling with with all with all of the the, the three british movies that i've done like sean fuzz and world's end you know they're all in they're all in places that i've lived and so there is this kind of like i think mischievous desire to cause absolute havoc <laughs> right yeah and also sort of like creating a, a a secret life to these you know innocuous seemingly yeah. innocuous environments oh no it's one of my proud i mean having done this press tour for like seven weeks one of my one of my ongoing like proudest things is being in another city in the world like being in chicago yeah watching my neighborhood on screen from home uh, like be torn apart it's like I, I was just something like amazing about it or just watching like I think me and Simon when we first did the Shaun of the Dead press tour and first started like showing that film around the states like being in Detroit and watching North London on screen is such a trip for us I can't even describe it yeah and it's almost like the thing like sort of it's like um you know, it's almost like with the kind of like the, you know, the movies, the British ones over here, like they, they, they're never like destined to be like a hundred million dollar hits, but that's yeah. kind of not the point. It's just the fact that we got them out there. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can't believe that fucking North London is playing all over like the, the, the crouch end in North London is all over like, and in this weekend, like, you know, when the, the world's end comes out, it's like these sit, uh, these towns like Letchworth and Wellington City you know the towns that we shot in the they're going to be international now oh yeah that's great they're going to be playing at the amc in cupertino that's pretty cool <laughs> that is cool so all right before we finish um what is your experience with with, with scott pilgrim and in, in how you make movies and i know you did uh the animated film with uh with spielberg but uh w what's your experience in sort of the next step for that i mean you're obviously on the radar and you're obviously going to have to reckon with hollywood and you have I mean, how how is it working with the with this this industry? It, it, you know, like it it was um you know like Scott Pilgrim was a film that didn't do as well as everybody hoped, but like I'm really proud of the movie, and and all all I could do like with that movie is just like work really really hard on it, and like I feel like sort of the actual I, I couldn't have like I mean I couldn't you know there's a thing with those movies is like you know if you work as hard as you can on them and you promote them as hard as you can on them, you've done all that you can do and after that it's in the lap of the gods yeah. about how it does commercially and sure. how it's marketed and stuff and so there's only so much you can do really so uh, you know it was a good experience like making the movie and uh i mean it's a good experience all around in terms of that even though it didn't do as well as everybody hoped but you didn't feel tempered creatively no you know what like there were some things in the sort of like the the test screening process and like just kind of actually trying to market it was like sort of the more challenging aspect than actually making it like if i look back at that movie i honestly look back and I'm thinking i cannot believe they let me make this movie right. it's fucking insane <laughs> yeah. you know and 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 that i'm really proud and in a way like sort of um 
what's really nice about it is it sort of continue it very quickly became like a midnight movie yeah and you know and you can appreciate that oh my oh god it's it's almost like it was a, a prophecy foretold you know <laughs> yeah. like sometimes like i would watch like old movies that i love that were cult movies like something like beyond the valley of the dolls yeah or phantom of the paradise sure they're crazy movies but the craziest thing about them is they have a studio logo at the front you see that you see the 20th century fox logo at the start of beyond the valley of the dolls and you think i cannot believe a studio made this movie and then i realized scott pilgrim is one of those movies (laughs) (laughs) but listen the movie has been re-released on blu-ray like four times so it's obviously doing okay (laughs) sure And what about uh, Spielberg meeting Spielberg and working with him? That was amazing. And he's a continued to be like sort of like um, in a very nice way. I think he sort of, uh, I, I feel sometimes like his nephew. Like he was a, incredibly sweet to me on, on, on Tintin is that he'd, he'd always be at pains. There was a really sweet moment that was so funny was we were doing this conference call like um, and, uh, you know, they were showing the animation from Tintin, which was in no way finished. It was like a rough of the animation, which, of course, I knew how that all worked. And I was, Spielberg said, sit next to me, like, on this conference call. And I was sitting next to him. And, in like, sort of whilst they're playing on this animation, he leant over and whispered in my ear for the benefit of me and nobody else said, Edgar, uh, of course, none of this is finished animation. <laughs> I just thought, I said, I said, I know, but the fact that you wanted to tell me that is so sweet. Like, my, my hero, he's, he, he's been great. Like, and, in fact, he sent me the sweetest email about The World's End the other day, which I just... um. It was something where I just thought, oh, I can just like retire tomorrow. He actually sort of, he, he sent me this really, really nice email about how much he loved the movie and said, please tell Simon and Nick they're amazing in it. And then it was like, lovely, lovely email. And at the end he put PS, he goes, he goes, I loved everywhere you put the camera. He goes like, good choices on composition. He goes, you have an excellent sense of montage, S. And I was thinking, fucking hell <laughs> you know it's like i just thinking well i may as well just quit like yeah. sort of or so, it's like a diploma of some kind you, you you've passed the biggest test possible what i'm gonna do filmmaker. is i'm gonna print out that email i'm yeah. gonna send it back to the bournemouth and paul college of art and design and say hey guys now do you want to take me on to the fucking <laughs> now now will you take me on yeah. Fifth, 20 years later yeah. now i'm gonna do the course yeah. maybe i should do that maybe i should go back and do that course now yeah yeah tell them as like a mature student oh, no no because if, <laughs> if they if if they're already using your name, they'll have you teaching. You're, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe this. Well, you know what they have. This is the funny thing, and I've got to do it. And now I've said it on the podcast, I I will have to do it. They have asked me back. That college has asked me to come back and do a talk, which is amazing. And I'm going to do it because they'd be so funny when they say, "What's your advice?" I say, "Well, number one, don't do this course." Yeah, yeah. You'll still get if you if you succeed, they'll put your name on it anyways <laughs> as alumni. I said, even if you get rejected, guys, and you do well, you could still be one of the alumni. So don't worry, you're all good. I'd say just go down the beach and get suntanning <laughs> but 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 yeah you could do that but the weird thing about your story is that you know you definitely knew the difference you know between taking advantage of and and honoring your vision and, and doing whatever you had to do to service it as opposed to just think it was going to happen by osmosis or oh no like off. oh totally like yeah. you just think sort of like you gotta you know like you gotta put in the hours and you gotta struggle and stuff and you know like even after spaced like when we'd done this show, which was not a massive ratings hit, but was very critically well regarded. Yeah. Actually getting Shaun of the Dead made was then like a three year, like waiting, like holding pattern of like, will it happen? It might not happen. I was just at the point where it was finally greenlit. I was, I actually said to my landlord, I said, hey, uh, I got to move out. And he said, he goes, oh, you know, um, is there anything I, I can do? And I said, I said, yeah, I can't afford the rent anymore. I got to go somewhere smaller. 
Yeah. And my landlord actually said, he goes, what if I, if I froze the rent, would that help? And I said, yeah, it helped for a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> like, so it was just about to like downsize to like a way smaller apartment. <laughs> having done like TV, having yeah. directed the French and Saunders Christmas special. Yeah. Now I was fucking broke. I still owe Simon Pegg. Here's the thing is, I, it got so, you know, bad that like, because the thing is, is that if you're trying to get a film off the ground, like taking like a TV job or taking like even a commercial and stuff is to kind of say that movie's now going back another six months. So I basically went through a period where I did a couple of music videos, but I didn't do any TV work because I was thinking, I'm holding out for this movie. Like, Simon could do acting jobs, but I couldn't really take on a TV job without bumping, like, my own right, film. Right, just to make like, sure, because you never knew when it was going to... When it was going to go, yeah. exactly. And in fact, I turned down this TV job. I turned down this TV job for a drama, and it was, I was very flattered to be asked, and I, like, emailed the producer, and I said... Hey, I'm really flat to be asked. I'd love to do this show, but I'm really holding out for my debut feature. Um, I'm holding out for my film to get made. And she emailed me back and said, if I had a pound for every time I've heard a director say that, which is like, ouch. Wow. I know, like, it's cold. But again, she was working you, man. No, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing is that sort of, um, <laughs> like, during that period, I had to borrow, borrow money off my agent, off Naira Park, my producer, and I had to borrow money off Simon. Now, here's the thing is, I still owe Simon Pegg £600. And when I offered to pay it back, he said, I'm not going to let you pay it back because I always want to have that over you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me, Edgar. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was great. I, it's, it's great to be on. It's lovely to be here. Okay. And man. listeners out there, I'd say that Mark's den is everything you wanted it to be. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> What a lovely chap, am I right? Is that wrong to say? Is that somehow condescending or racist in any way or, or ethnically improper for me to go, what a, what a pleasant bloke that was to speak to, that, uh, that Edgar Wright fella. Uh, as I said, the movie is available on uh, Blu-ray, digital, DVD, all that stuff, you know, the way we get things now. It was an enjoyable film. Uh, what else have I got to tell you? Uh, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. We are restocking for Christmas. Relax. We're going to have cat bowls. We're going to have t-shirts. We're waiting for some of them fancy Brian Jones mugs so you can drink your JustCoffee.coop out of those babies. Leave a comment. Get the app. Upgrade to the premium. Stream all 400 and some odd episodes of WTF. Enjoy. Enjoy it. I did it for you. I did it for you. I'm afraid to go into my fucking house. Smell was bad, man. Whew. Boomer lives!